Okay, previously, the last time we were in Joshua chapter 1, we saw the commission of Joshua and the promise that God gives of always being with him. It was more of a message of encouragement after all that they had been through. God was cleaning the slate of wickedness committed against him and giving the children of Israel a new start. God was giving them a new start. I think of 1 John 1, uh, 1 John 1, through, uh, 1 uh, verse 9, excuse me. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God always gives us a new start, too. It's transferred over into our era. He's the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, etc. But he is long-suffering and he is gracious. You know, when I sin and I get down about it, when I repent, I always know that he cleans the slate. If I really have a heartfelt repentance, I know that the Lord does not hold it against me. He always forgives me and he always forgives you. Tonight we're going to see the awesome story of Rahab, especially uh, in verses 18 and 19, about this scarlet cord that's bound around the window that saves her and her family. Okay, we're going to see how uh, this chapter is all about this scarlet cord in a way and how it typifies the blood of Christ that saves us all. We spoke about types. And the last time we started talking about who Joshua was. Tonight, we're going to talk about who Rahab was and how this pagan woman, woman of ill repute became a hero of faith in both the Old and the New Testaments. And then there's also an ancillary theme of how God reached down from heaven and made a hero out of a nobody in the world. Jesus said, he who is exalted will be brought down, will be abased. He who is humble will be exalted. Who is Rahab? The first thing we understand about her is her name. Her name is translated as violence. Boy, talk about a rough start in life. Imagine naming your kid violence. <laughs> Why did her parents name her that? Was it because of the climate and that pagan culture, the violent climate? Was it because it was a prophetic name? Maybe knowing in the future that she would be a prostitute. We don't know. We have no idea. But we do know that Rahab was a pagan Canaanite woman living in the city of Jericho. That's what we do know. And we know that she was a prostitute. Somehow she responded to God drawing her to himself as she tells Joshua about the fear that she has of his God. We are all in fear of your God. She uh, makes incredible statements about the God of Israel. Now she heroically also saves the two spies by hiding them kind of reminiscent of the Christians. I, I could think about this in my mind when I started reading about how she hid them from the, the king of Jericho. Reminiscent of the Christians who hid Jews from the Nazis during the Holocaust era. Well, this woman Rahab eventually marries a Jewish man named Salmon, and together they uh, bear Boaz. Now, Boaz may sound familiar to you because of the, the book of Ruth, Boaz and Ruth. And eventually she becomes Rahab sort of the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ himself. Wow, talk about a success story in her life, huh? Rags to riches. But ironically, ironically, she is saved by a type of Christ with this scarlet cord, and she is saved by this, this type of Christ whom she later, in the future, in a sense, gives birth to. How's that for a mind teaser? Jericho, a little bit about Jericho, and then we're going to jump in. 
Jericho is important because it shows the power of God and his people's faith in him through impossible odds. As the city was virtually impregnable by natural means. And you know, they actually, I've saw pictures of Jericho. They've actually excavated Jericho. There's uh, well-known, renowned archaeologists who could tell you all about the city and how they lived based on their findings at Jericho. Still the ruins stand in that portion of Israel today. But, uh, excuse me, Jericho had an inner and outer wall so impressive and strong that there were actually homes that spanned the inner and outer wall. And Rahab actually had her home on the wall, it says. So you had these two tremendous walls, an inner wall and an outer wall. um, We're going to go into more on the walls when we go to the portion of Scripture where the walls come tumbling down. But I'll just tell you a little bit about them. They had these incredible walls, inner wall, outer wall, right? And then to provide even more strength to the wall, the homes that would cross, would bridge them, would give them extra strength. So when we see how the children of Israel, through God's power, get those walls to come tumbling down, you're going to really be impressed when you realize how incredible those walls were to begin with. Now, if all, most of you, hopefully all of you got a map uh, when you came in, but if you look at the map, I just want to just carve out two important locations here, and then we can start. The first one, of course, is Jericho. If you look at the Dead Sea and then go north a little bit, it's hard to see. With the, there's an arrow that goes to the left. Right under that arrow, it says Jericho. Okay? So it was just north of the Dead Sea and about five miles west of the Jordan River. The other area of importance is Acacia Grove or Chittim in the Hebrew. It was a verdant area just east of the Jordan River, which I don't actually have that marked. So those two locations, you see that. We're going to start with verse 1, chapter 2. It says, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, you who who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they went, where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So Joshua sends out two spies. Well, why did he do that? Why did Joshua, God said, go take the land. You know, it's, it's going to be delivered into your hands. Why did Joshua send out two spies to check out the land? Well, he sort of was following in Moses' footstep because Moses did the same thing. If you look on your map, uh, I did mark Kadesh Barnea, if you look all the way down to the bottom of the page, that was the place where um, the spies were sent out. Moses sent out 12 spies to view the land before, you know, taking it. Um, Some think that Joshua showed a lack of faith here, but I disagree with that. Because even when God calls us to do something, we need to pick up ourselves and follow him. We need to use that faith in action, right? It's that, that faith plus works. 
not just the belief of it, but actually moving in faith. Too many times people know that the Lord is calling them to be obedient, but they're just sitting around waiting for the signs in the heaven, thinking that God's going to do everything for them. But that's not how he works. Joshua was called to conquer the area, but he didn't know exactly how to do it. He decided to walk in faith. God doesn't bless the lazy. If we look in the book of Proverbs, it speaks very frequently about the sloth, the slothful man. He is so slothful, one of the Proverbs says that he can't even lift up the food to his mouth from the bowl. His hand is like stuck in the bowl. That's how lazy he is. God does not bless the lazy. We're to walk in the general direction that God leads us in, and he fills in the blanks. I think about uh, a few years back when I had the community Bible study in the Dayton Center for a few years. You know, I got to tell you, I felt the Lord was moving me towards something, but I I wasn't sure what it was. So uh, I went out and I started the Bible study, and, you know, I kind of would get bummed out at times. Maybe five people would show up, and I'm like, what am I doing here, you know? And many times I would, you know, probably too many times I'd talk to my friends and just whine about, (laughs) did I really hear from the Lord? But you know what? God was preparing me for this. I would have never in a million years thought that I would be here today as your senior pastor. Never would have thought it. So God used that study as a training ground for me, you know, proving ground, so to speak. And I got to tell you, if any of you feel like God is moving you to do sort something, maybe a, a community Bible study or a uh, college ministry or something like that, you have my blessings. However we can help you, we'll help you. So anyway, these two spies end up at Rahab's place. Now, some people read too much into the scriptures. I know somebody who went to a Bible study about the book of Joshua, and they came back and they said, yes, one of the persons was saying that they slept with her because she was a prostitute. People read way too much. They take too many liberties with the scriptures. You've got to be careful of bizarre interpretations that people have. They probably figured that, you know, because she was a prostitute, she wasn't terribly loyal to, uh, to her country. Or is it possible that God just prepared her heart and he orchestrated that meeting? She was waiting for them, right? Uh, was it possible that God knew of Rahab's fear of him and that she would very easily flip given the right prodding and it was his love to Rahab, you know, that he was reaching out to Rahab, right? Could have been any of those things. No doubt these guys were, these two guys were probably a little bit nervous about being found out. Think about it. It's like a closed society. They probably put on a certain type of cloak and maybe covered their faces if they could because people would recognize them as strangers, right? So they might have been a little bit nervous about being there, grossly outnumbered, certainly, and venturing into the unknown. I'm sure the last thing that they were thinking about was sinning and making their already uh, tedious situation any worse. So I, I, I totally reject that, um, that speculation. Okay, verse 3, the king sends for Rahab, right? And this is no small matter because if, they, if she was found out lying or harboring these spies, the, uh, the punishment could have been that she was tortured to, to death, or even worse, that she would have to watch her family be tortured to death. We don't realize how good we have it in this country. Uh, you know, the authorities are held in check by another authority, and if the authorities abuse you, it's on the news before uh, 7 o'clock. But in other countries, in some of these really barbaric countries, people are tortured. And, you know, and there's no rules against that torture. If it's a monarchy or a certain type of uh, governing authority, 
they literally torture people and their parents or their family will watch it and that's the way that they instill fear into the hearts of these people. Somebody was telling me about uh, uh, they went to Cuba and they got to know the Cuban people and Fidel Castro would grab a chicken and he would hold it by the throat and one by one he would pluck the feathers out and pluck it out until the chicken was completely bare. And that was his example to the people of how he would hold them in subjection. It's funny how, I mean, real, I'm going off on a tangent here, but it's funny how the media in this country really is so unpatriotic. They don't realize the wicked, wicked, evil dictators that there are in other countries. And he would pluck that chicken one at a time until that chicken just was, was butter in his hands because the chicken had no more will after he was done plucking it. But that's how they deal with the people. They, they would treat them like animals. So anyway, Rahab, long story short, Rahab was taking a big chance by hiding these spies. Verses 4 through 6, Rahab makes the choice to hide the Israeli spies over the patriotism to her country. And we see why in the next few verses. Okay? Um, I think what really stands out here is the fact that Rahab lies to protect these two spies. The interesting thing is at some point it would appear that she becomes a believer if she already hasn't in her heart. So the question is, you know, it's funny. I've actually listened to some, uh, read some things about this and listened to some commentaries, and nobody addresses the lying issue. They kind of like gloss over it. So I'm going to take a stab at this. <laughs> the question is, is it ever okay to lie? Well, Jesus said to his believers, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. Be a person of your word. Considering lying is always done for self-preservation, what about when it's done to protect the lives of others? The Supreme Court says that the police are permitted to lie to get a confession. I was actually privy to a conversation between a detective and a, a well-known pastor. It wasn't me. <laughs> I'm not well-known. So he was actually uh, burdened by the fact that he would get people who murdered. It was a, a, an urban area, people who molested children, and he would get confessions out of them by lying to them, not beating them up, not coercing them, but just telling them whatever he thought that they would want to hear to gain his trust so they would tell where the child was, where the body was, all that kind of stuff. And the, uh, the pastor's response was that he was doing that to protect society when he was working within the framework of the law. Very interesting. Now, I'm going to really try to confuse you, and then I'm going to bring it back. What about the countless Christians that lied about the Jews they harbored in their homes when questioned by the Nazis during the era of the, era of the Holocaust? We could sit here and say that was wrong. They lied. But we're also sitting here in an air-conditioned Bible study on a Wednesday night. Nobody's breaking down our doors, right? What if you were put in that position and you, had, uh, you were harboring the Jews in your basement or the, or the ceiling, you know, and you wanted to protect them? Um, again, would Jesus' persistent theme of preservation of another's life supersede other laws. Remember when the two laws came into conflict, David and the showbread. Uh, Jesus actually gives his assent to it. When the, uh, the priests had the, loaves of, the 12 loaves of the showbread, and David and his men were hungry. They were famished. They had nothing to eat. So they went and they spoke to the priest and they said, we're starving. David's like, my men haven't eaten anything. And the priest says, well, this is not lawful except for the priest to eat. And they said, well, have your men kept themselves pure? They, have they kept themselves from women? Yeah, okay, they can eat the showbread. Okay, um, again, I'm not going to give you a hard, fast answer here because I certainly don't have one. But suffice it to say that re respected Bible scholars on both sides of the issue or fall on both sides of the issue, yes and no. What I can tell you is that if you lie 
to cover for yourself, whether it be an ungodly relationship you don't want anyone else to know about, whether it's something for financial gain, whether it's some way to better your reputation, whether you're lying because coming clean might cause you embarrassment for a bad decision that you made, or any type of gain for yourself, that is certainly wrong. What about exaggerations? I've actually said things and then corrected myself in front of people because I felt that that was an exaggeration. <laughs> exaggerations are lies, right? It's not the truth in, in the strict framework of what the truth is. Uh, what about if I'm supposed to be home for dinner and I'm, I get caught up talking and my wife calls me on the cell phone and I just got in my car and I say, I'm almost home. <laughs> well, what's almost home? Is it two miles away? Is it 20 miles away, right? A famous president said, what's the definition of is when he was being questioned, right? <laughs> so you all know him. So, you know, exaggerations, lies. You know, the problem is when you, you don't want to be legalistic, but if you give yourself too much slack when it comes to exaggeration, then it becomes a pattern. And I can tell you, when you lie often, you believe your own lies and you become self-deluded. That's, that's a big problem. Um, I've certainly dealt with people like that. They just lie, and then they cover it up with another lie, and it's a big web of lies, right? Before, a Christ, before I was a Christian, you know, I, I lied, and I lied well, and I probably lied often. My wife isn't here to verify that, but, but I, can, I can pretty much te- detect when somebody is, you know, just going through that pattern of lying. So I believe it's, it's frustrating when that happens, but the truth always comes out in the end. Lies will always find you out. That sin will find you out. Uh, so then going back to the, the um, World War II thing, if it was me and the Nazis knocked on my door and they said, are there any Jews in the home? I probably would have lied to protect them. You know, you get, and you can say, Joe, you're, that means you're, you're not trusting the Lord. And you're probably right. I, w- I wasn't trusting the Lord, right? But, um, you know, I, I just don't know the answer to it. If Rahab told the truth, two things could have happened, and only two things, two scenarios from this. If Rahab told the truth and said, yeah, this, I hid them, they're on the roof. Number one, the spies could have been killed. Both of them could have been killed, but Jericho would have still fallen into the hands of God. Why? Because God promised that Jericho would fall into the hands of, of the is, Israel, right? So we know that would have happened. The other scenario is Rahab would have said, told the truth and said, yeah, they're on the roof. And God may have protected them divinely, and they may have lived. Okay? She didn't, she chose to lie, but... God certainly could have protected those two spies, and Jericho would have fallen into the hands of the children of Israel. Why? Because when God says something and he promises something, that promise always comes true. So those are the only two scenarios that could have happened. There you have both sides of the story. Verse 8 says, So before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Remember, this is a, a pagan woman. Listen to what she says. The Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's fascinating because these pagan peoples 
worshipped gods of the different areas, the gods of the valleys, the gods of the mountain, the gods of the seas. You can see that especially in Greek and Roman mythology. It transferred over there. You know, Poseidon and Neptune were, this, were the gods of the seas, and, and Ares was the god of war, and Zeus was the god of all gods. And You know, it just was ridiculous. So for her to say that, she realizes that this isn't like her pagan god. This god is god of the heaven and the earth. There is no place that can't contain the god of Israel. It's pretty amazing. This sounds like an awful lot like a conversion to me, uh, sort of like Nebuchadnezzar's uh, realization, right, in the book of Daniel. She shows a lot more faith in God than I've seen some Christians display, right? But throughout the story, she has that saving faith that James speaks of, not just mere mental assent. Again, I have a friend, I might have told this story before, uh, I grew up with him, he moved, he lives in Italy, he's lived there for years, and he came back to visit, and he told, he told us that he read the Bible from cover to cover, and he could quote scripture, but it really had no effect on his heart. He didn't do anything with it. And I'm not even so sure that he believes that Jesus is our Savior. But it's not just a mental assent, it's, uh, it's a saving faith. There needs to be fruit. Verse 12. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. That's interesting. Um, they wanted her to be quiet about what was going on. They wanted her to, you know, her end of the bargain was that she wasn't to reveal what was going on. They just wanted her to keep quiet. Sometimes it's just good for us to keep our mouths shut, isn't it? That's a lesson in itself. Proverbs 10:19 says, In a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And I think all of us, I, I can see that in, in my own life if I'm, I don't know, maybe out with friends and I just start talking and I just keep talking and talking. Eventually I say something stupid. You've, have you all been there or is it just me? <laughs> Your mouth keeps going and eventually something stupid comes out and you wish that you could kind of take it back. Even when I do a, a service or a sermon, uh, when I'm up there I have my notes. And I try not, because I'm the king of going off on tangents, I try not to go too far off because then it becomes, if it's just me, it's an exercise in futility. And I'll say something dumb, and it's already on the CD, and I can't take it off. So there you have it. So the more you talk, you have a tendency not only to get yourself in trouble, but you have a tendency to get other people in trouble too, as would be the case here if she was to blabber this. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. Then the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street has his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. 
And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now, Rahab, this again, this is really what it's all about. If you if you take everything that we talked about, this whole story is about this scarlet cord of redemption. And that's what the title is. And we're going to talk about why it's so important. So how does Rahab and her family get saved? She takes this scarlet cord, which she saved the spies with, right? This blood red cord and binds it to the window so that the advancing army, when they see that that blood red cord, will kill everyone else except for the people that are protected by that blood red cord on the window. And anyone who's found in that house will be saved. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like the Passover. The blood of the lamb, the innocent lamb, without blemish, was shed. And what they would do is they were supposed to take it, I believe with hyssop, and they would paint the doorposts, right? And what happened was when the advancing Lord God would come to kill and take all the firstborn, they would see, he would see the blood and they would, he would pass over the house, hence the name Passover. So all the people who were in that house who were covered by the blood were safe in Egypt, right? And what does it ultimately sound like? It sounds like Christ, obviously. The blood of Christ was shed for the remission of our sins. As believers in Christ, we are covered by his blood. And when God demands a payment for sin, because he's not only a God of love, but he's a God of justice and judgment, when he demands that payment for sins and his wrath is poured out over the whole uh, mankind from all the way in the past until the present and the future, when that time comes, those people that are covered in the blood of Christ will be saved. So, and that's what it is. They won't be harmed. You know, this is why I encourage Jewish people to read the Old Testament. Some people say, well, I'm intimidated to witness to a Jewish person. Do it through the Old Testament. The more you learn about the Old Testament and the more you encourage a Jewish person to read the Old Testament, there's pictures of Christ all over the Old Testament. You have to put blinders on and step over stuff, not to step on something in the Old Testament that shows you about Christ. So I don't think that it's an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence that this, this cord, this red cord, resembles the protection and it, it points forward to the blood of Christ. Verse 22. Then they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. For indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So the two spies eventually come back and they regroup with Joshua. And they tell him the good news. Now the difference between the case of the twelve spies, remember, under the leadership of Moses at Kadesh Barnea, and the two spies here is that the two spies are unanimous, right? in believing that the Lord will give them victory. The 12 spies uh, save Joshua and Caleb. The 10 spies unanimously agreed that we shouldn't go in because they're giants and they're frightening, and they uh, didn't believe. They didn't have the faith in God. So a little bit of a different uh, ending here. Major theme, without a doubt, is the the typology of Jesus Christ. That's the major theme in this chapter. But the minor theme is, 
the exaltation of one of, uh, you know, the in, in, in society's eyes, even in maybe in, the, in, the, in Israel's eyes, if they would look at Rahab, they would look at her as one of the lowest in the socio-economical political food chain, right? It's Rahab. The story's about Rahab. You know, people say that they want to meet Peter and they want to meet Paul and all these men of faith. I'd like to meet Rahab and give her a high five, right? She had a lot of guts for what she did, didn't she? I mean, you got to think about it. I mean, she's in this secluded city. I mean, they were secluded. People, when they would get supplies, it, people just didn't go from city to city, right? Um, the, all these people spoke the same language. They had the same culture. They had the, the same nationalism. They were protected by the same wall, right? And for this woman to now take all that and put it aside and take a chance on the God of, of the Hebrews, that was big. So sometimes we have to, in, in our minds, put ourselves in these people's shoes. And then we see that she becomes even greater than what we thought. But there's another chord woven into this whole story, into this whole cast of characters with Joshua, the two spies, and Rahab. And that is believe. There's so many subplots to this. You've got to believe. No matter how rough life gets, you've got to believe. I mean, this must have been one of the happiest times in God's history to see that the people rallied around Joshua in, in chapter 1. They said to him, God said, be strong and of, of good courage. And his own people said to him, but go now and be strong and of good courage. They rallied around Joshua. They believed. In, in this instance, the two spies, yes, we believe. Rahab was like, yeah, we believe. Even the pagan peoples were like, yeah, we believe. We're going to get our butts kicked, you know. So everybody believed in God at the same time. It was pretty amazing. And that's good because, you know, we can't please God without faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that in order to please God, first of all, forget about good works and all that stuff. You, you can't even start to chip, you know, at the iceberg until Hebrews 11.6 says that we have to believe that God is. First of all, we have to believe that he exists. And then we have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's part of the equation. That's the big, that's the, the, that opens the door. We have to believe first. And then we can, we can even begin to make a dent in trying to please God. But I want to ask all of you tonight, do you believe? Do you believe? I can't read anybody's lines here. I don't know what your situation is. Um, uh, you know, David uh, sang about the prodigal, prodigal son. And I was talking to a pastor recently who, who's in that situation. Uh, and unfortunately, it's kind of common with pastors. I don't know why. Pastor's kid syndrome. Uh, there are a lot of prodigal sons out there, a lot of difficult relationships. People are struggling financially. The taxes are going up. Gas prices are going up. Maybe fears of the Middle East. I mean, things are just all coming together for the worst in our time. But do you believe? Do you believe that God can fix your, your problems? Do you believe that he can get you through it? And if not, why not? You know what I believe? I believe that whether it's somebody here or somebody who listens on the Internet or the CD, I believe that somebody is going to be touched by the message. It's not by what I'm saying. It's by the word of God. I believe that this message is specifically for somebody to hear this and to affect their lives. So I want to ask you tonight, if you're struggling with something, uh, please, if you're struggling with some type of disbelief or you, know, you want God to do something in your life, I would ask you to see at the end of the service any of the pastors or the elders. Believe.